Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a one trillion dollar tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk/greattalent to see how you can work, live, and move to the UK. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch. Forty-five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost fifty pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. We met today for lunch in Dublin.、Um, it's the first time I've physically met you since December 2019.、Uh, a lot has happened since then, including the launch of our podcast.、Uh, it was great to see you, and、um, you've aged well over the last couple of years, despite COVID. Thank、uh, you, Jim. I, I wish I could say the same for you.、Uh, well, thank you very much.、Uh, we had a nice, quiet lunch, which was in contrast to the sort of raucous lunches、uh, of yesteryear. And I guess that's reflecting work commitments and age this afternoon. So,、uh, welcome to Dublin. But just want to ask you, Chris, what were your observations walking around the city? I've been here for a few days, and it was, of course, great to see you, Jim. It's been too long. This this bloody thing, COVID,、um, that we haven't actually,、uh, you know, had a lunch or a coffee or whatever for for, for almost two years now. Quite frankly, is ridiculous, and I know different people have suffered far greater than that in the, in this pandemic. But it, it is ridiculous.、Um, it started with a flight, a Ryanair flight, actually,、uh, to Dublin the other day that was packed, and uh, uh, not everybody will agree with this, but I think that's great、um, that people are travelling now and taking advantage of, of of the ability to move around. Dublin Airport was pretty busy. Um, unlike the two previous occasions over the summer that I came in, my COVID pass was actually checked this time. So that's the first time in three visits to Dublin that that was done. My passenger locator form wasn't checked, and the queues on on the day that was in it were were quite long at、um, at immigration.、Uh, they were moving pretty quickly, but、uh, it was it was very very busy. Unlike again the previous couple of times. 
Dublin, this is very impressionistic and, you know, anecdotes aren't data, or at least if you have enough anecdotes, they eventually become data, I suppose. But even when I allow for the fact that it's November, it's the beginning of the week rather than the end of the week, I find the centre of Dublin very, very quiet. I think people in Ireland have responded to the warnings from Neffet, warnings from the government, the coronavirus numbers, case numbers going through the roof, all that stuff that seems to be occupying the headlines in the various outlets. People have responded by um, withdrawing. And uh, I, I thought it was noticeably quiet. The second thing I've noticed is that across two restaurant meals that I've had, one, one being lunch today, the other in a different restaurant yesterday for dinner, was the uh, lines on the menu that are all, all being crossed out. Lots of pen marks on the menu saying we haven't got this ingredient, we haven't got this item on the menu. So the shortages, the global supply shortages that you and I have talked about in the abstract for months clearly are hitting home. In, in Dublin's restaurants and that's something I've not seen in the UK actually I, and it's only two pieces of data but uh, the the waiting staff uh, were at pains to apologize and to point out what was not on the menu which which was interesting the third thing I have really noticed is on the windows of those restaurants and cafes and bars and pubs and all the rest of it every other one if not more than that seems to have a help wanted sign and it is quite clear that uh, there, there is a labour shortage in hospitality, which you and I have spoken about again in the abstract, but it's interesting to see it uh, upfront and personal. Again, I get the sense that it's worse in Dublin than it is in London, which I didn't expect, actually. It's bad in London, but it seems to be worse here, again, on the basis of anecdote, and, and I wouldn't attach too much weight to that. So, yeah, it's, 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 fa- it's great to be here. Dublin is a great city. Um, and it's nice to be walking around in, in the mild weather that we've got. Um, but there are some interesting observations to be made. Yeah, it's funny. I went in to meet you today and I had um, another uh, duty to attend to in town this afternoon. I hadn't been in very much in recent months. And I have to say, I did find it extremely quiet as well, uh, which kind of surprised me for, you know, moving into the second half of November. And um, I was I met somebody from the retail sector this afternoon in the city centre who said that footfall and basically sales are about 20 percent um, down on where they were in 2019. So clearly um, it, it is de- definitely having an effect, whereas I believe in Dundrum uh, business volumes are very strong. So I think people are definitely staying away from town. Um, for reasons of COVID, I would have thought. And um, that does set him up for a pretty challenging Christmas, I would have thought. And um, at six o'clock this evening, I see that the Taoiseach Michal Martin um, is addressing the nation. Um, I saw a friend of ours um, who's a good friend of this podcast tweeting there a few minutes ago, jellyfish politics, all drift and no spine while proclaiming transparency. Um, what we are, what we are. Going. That's a good one. Before you go on to having a go at the the dear old T-shirt, one thing that I forgot to mention is that something that both you and I observed when we met for lunch is that the place that we arranged to meet, and the, then the subsequent place that we tried to have lunch in, both were closed, and um, we noticed lots of establishments that are that have failed to reopen post pandemic, which again was a surprise. I didn't realise quite the extent of it. 
Um, is, is there a lot of it about? Yeah, there is a lot of it about in the city centre and it's largely because uh, people are working from home uh, right. because many of those establishments depend on the working trade at lunchtime and during the day and that just ain't there. And um, it's clear from the announcements that are going to be made today uh, that there is no intention of resuming um, working from the office for the foreseeable future. So that there is another significant challenge. Um, interesting, I was talking to a local restaurant air, a restaurant air um, out where I live in the last couple of days. And he was saying to me that business had been reasonably good. And then last Thursday, Neffet came out with some uh, pretty negative um, news stories and basically advising people, you know, only to socialize when you have to and limit your going out, etc. And he said from the following morning, customers just dropped off dramatically. And he's been very quiet since then. So uh, there's a segment of the population that is certainly being significantly hit by the negative news stories that are coming out about COVID. And it, it, it certainly feels to me that we are now moving back into that fear spectrum again, which was such a characteristic of the landscape for many people, not everybody, for many people over the last 18 months. Um, I have to say, personally, I made a decision at the beginning of COVID. I wasn't going to allow fear dominate my life. I was going to try and live my life as normally as I could in the circumstances. But there's a lot of people out there who have been characterized by fear in the last 18 months. And I definitely think um, the momentum there has increased again in recent days. And the Taoiseach, as I said, is out there at six o'clock this evening, making another state of the nation address. Um, uh, well, we, we know some of what's going to be said that working from home is going to remain a thing for the foreseeable future. And secondly, pubs and nightclubs closing at 12 o'clock. And the reason for that is because um, COVID comes out after 12 o'clock. Um, if, if you're in a pub or nightclub between 8 and 12, not a problem. But the I saw that research. I think it was published. I can't remember whether it was The Lancet or the New England Journal of Medicine that said that COVID is a disease for between 10 and 12 p.m. at night and then seems to uh, go into its shell somewhat, um, after, after midnight. Um, sort of a reverse Cinderella type thing, I think, is, is perhaps what we should call it. But seriously, Jim, is there any rationale for this decision whatsoever? The, the, the notion of shutting pubs and nightclubs at 12 o'clock, I, I just don't see the rationale. And in fact, I would see it as being totally counterproductive because what you will now have is more people concentrated in a tighter time frame. And that could actually exacerbate social contact rather than reduce it. Whereas if, if you spread it out over a longer period of time, you're unlikely to get the same sort of concentration. I, I just don't get it, to be honest, because... Uh, maybe there's a view that after 12 o'clock, people have more to drink and the the barriers come down and you get more social interaction and so on. But knowing how people behave, if they have to stop drinking at 12 or socializing, they'll just go out earlier. They will do probably the same amount anyway. I, I just don't see the logic. It's, it's, to me, it seems utterly bizarre. And I know that's that's a very measured, reasonable response to my question, Jim. Do you mind if I give you a not terribly measured and a very unreasonable response to my question? I, it is an absolute nonsense. It makes no sense whatsoever. I think it's really interesting that this is the first 
um, recommendation for restrictions that hasn't come from Neffert. So there's no pretense or fig leaf of scientific rationale evidence behind it. It, I cannot imagine it making any difference. The, the evidence for what we have is that restrictions actually make less difference than we have or than we might have thought in that this phenomena that we described that when the case numbers go up people's behavior changes without there being regulations to make them change has been a phenomena globally actually and i do know one somewhat quite reasonable scientists not the lunatics who think that restrictions are neither here nor there that it's people's behavior that has made the difference um, what are they going to do now what we, we have we've got vaccines um, we've got antivirals, we've got all the things that we were supposed to have. If you're going to start restricting now, then presumably this is restrictions on and off forever, one might have thought, and, unless COVID magically magically disappears. So I think it's a complete and utter nonsense. I think it is a government flailing around, not having a clue about what to do, and panicking. They will cite, no doubt, the state of the health service. So let me ask you a question, Jim. Do we know of any capacity, bed capacity, that has been added to the Irish health system over the course of the pandemic? My understanding is, Chris, and I am open to contradiction on this, but my understanding is that the bed capacity and ICU capacity has not changed since the beginning of COVID. So we have two years in which to put the extra capacity in place to deal with uh, the resurgence in infection rates. And um, it's still creating the same sort of crisis in the system. And um, in, indeed, if you look at waiting lists, there's I think about 905,000 people on waiting lists in this country at the end of October. Um, if you look at Limerick Hospital today, um, A&E had the largest number of people waiting um, in its history, I believe. So the capacity in the whole system has not changed one iota in the last two years. That is my understanding. Okay, as I say, I am open to contradiction and correction on that. But but that that has to be, you know, such an indictment of the the health service here, and particularly the HSE. Um, you know, the one thing that you really need to cope with this crisis is hospital capacity. And if you have a crisis and you're likely to have ongoing health crises, well, then put more capacity in place is the obvious response. Uh, well, presumably, and again, I don't want to be too fair to people that I certainly think are completely incompetent and flailing around. Adding capacity to the health system is not just a question of throwing money at it because the doctors and the nurses aren't there to be hired, I know, is the response. And that's what we hear in the UK as well. But still, um, one would have thought that some effort might have been made to uh, get to the point where the health service doesn't fall over the moment winter starts. That is what it is. And I must say that I think that the Irish government by dem in, in, in this, this one nightclub thing demonstrates, provides all the evidence that people need for all the criticisms that one makes of them about not knowing what they're doing, about flailing around, about not being evidence-based. And, you know, I just think they, they want to hand the next election to whoever wants power more than they do, which doesn't seem to be very much, in, in my view. Finally, on COVID, Jim, I wanted to ask you about antigen testing. In the UK, um, I have boxes of these antigen tests around the place. Everybody's got a collection of them because they're free. We can get them from all sorts of different places. We can get them posted to us. We can collect them in our local chemist. 
and everybody has collect you know uh, enough we call them lateral flow tests and they be, they've been an important uh, part and only part of the um, armory in in trying to deal with with covid and a lot of people think that they haven't been the most significant part that's obviously the vaccine but they have been important um what's with the what's with the anti antigen testing ethos here in ireland well there has been zero acceptance from the powers that be over the last year that antigen testing should and could represent part of the solution part of the way of dealing with this unlike what's happening in many other countries, including, as you say, the UK. And indeed, my youngest son is home from London at the moment. Um, He's in college over there. And um, he had a number of antigen tests with him. So it seems like a very sensible approach, but there's been no acceptance, except that now, apparently, they're thinking about um, allowing antigen testing, particularly in the schools. Uh, But unlike in the UK, it is likely that we're going to have to pay three euro per antigen test. So they're going to be subsidized, uh, but they're not free, uh, which I think is a nonsense as well, because... What's the logic between behind charging three euros for an antigen test? Uh, I, 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 presumably, they don't like antigen tests and they believe that charging will deter people from using them. Um, I think it's totally perverse logic as well. Um, I'm not. Nobody ever said that antigen testing was the solution to current mm. this problem but it has to be part of the armory there's no doubt about that you know there's lots of, i would agree yeah. there's lots of different strategies that need to be put in place uh but th- there's been absolutely um no acceptance and it, it's it's interesting here a few weeks ago um ireland was being hailed as top of the league table in terms of dealing with COVID, and now we're about the 10th worst in the world uh it just shows you how in a few weeks uh, things can change. How, how things can change dramatically. But uh, I, I do think the refusal to contemplate antigen testing has been a serious flaw in the approach here. And um, I, I think it certainly would have influenced the behaviour of some people, at least, if they did an antigen test, discovered they were positive, um, you know, and then they they would um, amend their behaviour accordingly. But, uh, yeah. yeah, it's a strange one, Chris. It's a strange one. All right, let's move on from COVID corner. Um, that, that's a big corner today. Um, as I say, I do find the uh, the nightclub thing bordering on bizarre. Uh, but let's let's I move on. To add, it doesn't affect me. Well, you never know, Jim. Second, second youth and all that sort of thing. Now that you're out and about, <laughs> I can assure you, Chris. <laughs> um, speaking of you, Jim, uh, I know that uh, you, you've been you've been back in Dublin for a little while now, but you were sitting on a beach for a couple of weeks. And one of the things that you did, you were mentioning over lunch, is that you listened while sitting, while sunning yourself on some beach in Portugal. I know that you tell me that you were walking and exercising, but I reckon you were sitting under a palm tree most of the time drinking some rather nice red wine. Um, Is that you listened to the podcast that Peter Van Dessel and I did, and that you had some interesting observations to make about that. You thought some of the arguments were interesting. And I'm interested in what you said, because, you know, Jim Powell, right-wing lunatic, you know, that's that's the persona, that's the image that you create in the global marketplace of ideas. But you had some sympathy for the uh, stuff that certainly I was talking about, which is that um, the, the, the global game is rigged. And the point that I was making is that it's not just rigged now in, in the way that we know and love. You know, I've talked about it, winner takes all, corp in 
corporate land, Apple and the rest of them are are raking all of the corporate profits. We've got big, big monopolies dominating our corporate life. But it's also true across the spectrum in terms of jobs, employment, income, housing, winner takes all. The global game is rigged. um, And the only difference um, between now and the past is that nowadays we're, we're, we're conned into thinking that it's a meritocracy. It isn't. The game is rigged. And it's always been rigged. It goes back to medieval times, all that stuff that I was talking about in that podcast. And that the veneer of civilization that we put on it now is that we are still all serfs, apart if we're not part of this global elite. We still are all serfs. And the only difference between now and medieval times, for the most part, depending on which part of the world you live in, but certainly in this part of the world, serfs don't get killed. We just we just get done down. And, and that, that that really is the, the, the only difference. There's no real, you know, we in the 21st century, it ain't that different to five, six, seven hundred years ago in which the global elites take everything. The way they did it in the past was by killing their enemies, killing the serfs. Nowadays, they, they just get us to log into Facebook. Uh, different methods, but with the same result. What fascinated me about this, Jim, was that you were quite, you know, in your very right-wing way, quite sympathetic to this idea that the game is rigged in favour of a global elite. Could you expand on that? Yeah, I'd like to expand on something first, Chris. Uh, Go on. When you describe me as a right-wing lunatic, I would categorise myself uh, economically and politically as slightly right of centre, I think that's fair. I will retract my remark. And and socially a little bit left of centre. That's where I position myself ideologically. I stand corrected. And and I I apologise for my somewhat over I was was actually on a long cliff top walk in Portugal listening to that podcast you did with our former colleague, Peter Van Dessel, who is now a very successful hedge fund manager in the United States. Um, I thought it was an intriguing discussion and it, it, it got me thinking on the day, but I've subsequently thought a lot about it. Um, my wife and myself are watching the 2019 version of Dark on Netflix at the moment. And it is quite incredible uh, how the elites, you know, ruled Britain back in those days. And indeed, you were referring in that podcast to the situation in Cardiff where you grew up. Um, about how you know the elites ruled that city um, so, so, some years back, but yeah, in Poldark back in those days, serious, serious elites ruled absolutely everything, and basically the serfs were treated as total non-entities. And um, there was some Malthusian stuff coming out there about um, you know not helping uh, the poor because you know, you'd basically be better off without them. But you don't want too many of them. No, you don't want too many of them, exactly. But anyway, uh, that's beside the point. It was, it, it's interesting the way um, nothing has subsequently changed. You know, we still have uh, the global elites ruling absolutely everything. Um, you know, the income inequality, the equality of opportunity are, are all seriously flawed not just in this country. And in fact, I would have thought Ireland is slightly better than many other countries, you know, particularly the United States or indeed the United Kingdom at the moment. Uh, but whatever, it's it's, it's it's a question of variation, um, a question of degree. But there is massive inequality. The elites certainly rule the roost. Um, you know, you, you, you spoke about the access to private schools and everything that that generates thereafter. Um, that is 100% correct. 
Um, yeah, and- one of the in, one of the interesting things that we didn't discuss in that podcast that you and I have discussed subsequently, and I think it's worth mentioning now, is you observe this phenomenon: winner takes all. Global elite still take their massive share of the pie, and the rest of us are left with crumbs from their table. And the situation was just as that I described there in the medieval times, and we are in exactly the same situation now, except they. In, in medieval times, they were all barons and lords of this, that, and the other, and the source of their wealth was land. Now they all live in Silicon Valley, and in England, they still um, are aristocrats living as the landed gentry, and, and other countries similarly. So, as you say, less so in Ireland, actually. Ireland is a more egalitarian society than, than many others, um, but not without its issues, absolutely. But you, 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 you take this observation that winner takes all, the elites still control everything, and we're the idiots at the table or, or under the table looking for crumbs. And it's the, it's the journey that people make once they ha- realise this, that, the, that meritocracy is a fiction, that um, if, if, the, if the elites allow you a share of their pie, it's under sufferance and um, they, they, they really would rather not do it. Uh, and that if you do get lucky in life, it is because you are lucky rather than anything else. The journey that you make once you realise that the game is rigged. We seem to, in the modern era, perhaps it's always been like this as well, you either go all the way to the extreme left, you become Jeremy Corbyn, or you go all the way to the extreme right and you become Steve Bannon in the United States. You seem to go to one of the two political extremes because of this one central phenomena about which you both actually agree. Because one of the interesting things I think is that if you had, if you took Steve Bannon and put him in the same room as Jeremy Corbyn, obviously they would have very different policy proposals, but the source of their angst, the source of their annoyance, the source of why they think the system needs tearing down and rebuilding in very different ways is both the same. They're both observing the same phenomena, a rigged system. Do you think that's a wee bit simplistic or do you think there's something to that thesis? No, I think there is something to that thesis. And I have believed for some time that the elites who are, you know, continuing to exacerbate the situation, um, they are digging their own graves because, you know, I go back to Paul Dark again. Um, there was a, a few episodes in that where the miners who are seriously poorly paid, etc., started to rebel. And of course, um, they were either... Uh, exported out of the country or they were hung. That was the response of the elites to uh, the poor actually standing up for themselves. Um, The longer this goes on, you know, the more extreme uh, reaction you are going to get. And as I say, ultimately, the elites are going to dig their own graves if they continue with these sorts of policies and these sorts of trends. But I think you're absolutely correct there's two ways of responding to this. You could go to the extreme left or you could go to the extreme right, as Steve Bannon has done. Uh, but they are both motivated by the same thing. It's this, as you said, it's this desire to bring down a broken system and to start from scratch again. And I guess the question then is, are you more likely to succeed from the Bannon approach, the far right approach or the far left approach? So I'll put the question another way. Um, is Steve Bannon likely to be more successful or Jeremy Corbyn. And I would have thought the way things are going, actually, uh, the whole Bannon and the radical right approach is winning out in this battle at the moment. And you look at uh, Boris in the United Kingdom, you look at 
the phenomenon of Trump in the United States. And um, a lot of sensible people are suggesting at this stage that Trump will be the next president of the United States, assuming he is still alive. So I, I think the sort of right reaction to the right wing reaction to this is the one that's ultimately going to have most impact on bringing down the system and starting it all over again. What do you think? I think you're right. It seems that the the right wing has more political traction in that, uh, you know, Trump did win office for four years. But of course, the riposte to that is that he lost. In the UK, Johnson is in power. He won election on essentially a, a very right wing populist platform. And this is what we're talking about is that the the observation that the system is broken and we are going to uh, tear it down and rebuild something that means that it isn't rigged against you. It's a very odd one for people like Boris Johnson to be proposing. The people that benefit from the system, Johnson and people like Johnson, the ones that are the elite, seemingly uh, appealing to the common man or woman to... Uh, to say that the system is rigged, it's, it's, it's quite a paradox. And of course, the way that paradox is resolved is by pointing out that, as with most populists throughout history, the last thing Johnson is going to do is actually tear the system down and make it less rigged in, in favour of people like himself. And so ultimately, one assumes he'll suffer at the ballot box, and that is democracy. Um, I, I think that what we're talking about is, is is something that has happened throughout history. We're talking about revolution of, of one kind or another, hopefully peaceful, and throughout history it sometimes hasn't been. I'm thinking of France, for example, and the way the elites there eventually did almost literally dig their own graves in, in terms of ending up on the scaffold, ending up on the guillotine. But one of the things that history also teaches us is that once that revolution is over, um, the elites maybe a different kind of elite, but they always come back. They're like cockroaches. You can kill as many of them as you like, but they will keep coming back. You can't make them extinct. And if you have a revolution, peaceful or otherwise, that, that does uh, supplant one elite uh, system of government, a group of people, it's just replaced by another. Look at Russia at the moment. Look at Russia since its own revolution. Uh, we rarely seem to be able to generate a political system that genuinely is is for all the people all of the time. It always strikes me that his, the lessons of history is that it, we just have to look for where the system is rigged. But I would certainly agree with you that um, it, it strike that the 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 momentum is still on both sides of the Atlantic with the populist right. We shall see. These things can change in a heartbeat. But uh, that 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 I would certainly agree with um do you think we're going to get a revolution jim no i i don't think we're going to get an outright revolution and w one of the reasons for that is because you can never get uh the left united enough i mean if you look at the left in this country it is still uh it's, it's still very broken you know there's not a, a huge sense of unity of purpose there um and and of course on the right we don't have very much of the radical right, very little, in fact, in this country. So um, the chances of revolution in this country, I think, are pretty slim. Uh, whereas in the United States, uh, well, sorry, I should, maybe through the political system, we will get a, a minor revolution after the next election. Um, and we spoke in our last podcast about Sinn Féin. I mean, certainly Sinn Féin coming into government would represent somewhat of a 
a revolution in political terms that could have very significant implications. Um, in the United States, we, we got the political revolution with Trump. Um, and in a sense, we've got it in the United Kingdom with Boris Johnson. And indeed, in many other countries, you know, we do see the far right appearing to be much healthier and more vibrant than the far left. So go, go back to the point, I think the right definitely um, has more impact on uh, tackling these elites. Uh, but at the end of the day, I don't think we're going to get a revolution. Um, and even if we do get some sort of revolution, uh, we just replace one elite with a different type of elite. Uh, but you're still left with elites. Is is this us human nature? I, well, I think it's the lesson of history. Um, the one thing I'd want to know from you, Jim, is that I, you know, I think, I mean, would I be right in saying that I'm talking to a member of the Irish elite? Um. Jesus, I wouldn't have thought so. Um, I just want to know how I get to join up. Yeah. Where's, where's the application form? What do I have to do? Right, Chris. I mean, I didn't go to a private school. Um, I didn't send my sons to a private school, nor would I on principle. Um, I, you know, I worked for a couple of years. I put myself through college. So I, I wouldn't regard myself um, as, as necessarily. I've got crumbs from the table, okay, from the elites. I certainly wouldn't regard them as part of the elites. Um, and, and, and no more than yourself. I mean, I, I know your background. I certainly know you do not come from an elite background. And like myself, you've got the crumbs off the table. Uh, but we still very much would not be part of, um, in either of our societies, uh, part of the elite. No, I, I would agree. I think we're, we're outsiders that have benefited from a good few crumbs from the table but we're yeah. certainly not not at the center of things so i'm hoping that if if, if there are any revolutionaries out there thinking of uh, putting people up against a wall or chopping well, their heads off that they, that they don't put our names on the list yeah. perhaps we should call it there jim there's there's still lots of things that we wanted to talk about but let's leave it till next time shall we yeah okay chris next time i want to talk a little bit about the latest house price inflation for example of what's happening on the rent side. Cause, okay, well, uh, let's yeah. begin there next time. Yes, Cheers, mate. Listen, it was great meeting you today. Um, great to have lunch. I look forward to seeing you again and enjoy Likewise. the rest Likewise. of your stay in Dublin. Bye. Likewise. Bye, Jim. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power, on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did... Please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.